0: Let me put it a different way. Either you choose or the court's gonna choose. And even your worst decision is probably gonna be better than the court's decision. So let's hear some candidates.
1: Episode 20 of the Wealth and Law Podcast. I am Brent Nelson, and as usual, I'm joined by Rachel Sass. Rachel, thanks for joining me again.
2: Yeah, how are you doing tonight?
1: Uh, I'm doing well. Uh, it's 20. I, ha- I, It has not escaped my attention that one more episode and our podcast will be legal drinking age. <laughs> I
2: love that. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Can you imagine? Yeah, it's it's gone fast. It but, has, yeah, we're going to be at 100 pretty soon.
1: It, well... <laughs> Five more times of this, and we'll be at a yeah. hundred. That's all. Yeah, it has gone pretty fast. I think uh, on on the whole, it's been a, a a quick few months of just doing lots of episodes and having lots of interesting conversations. So I've appreciated that for sure.
2: Mm-hmm, definitely.
1: So, how are you guys doing? Anything new happening?
2: We are, you know me, I'm on to DIY project number 263 at this point. Nice. Um, it's, just, it's just one thing after another. I Like I, I told you before, I'm going to be the next Joanna Gaines by the time quarantine is over. Just my whole house will be completely renovated. That's awesome. <laughs>
1: you won't need this law degree anymore.
2: No, I'm sorry. It's, you know... I'm going to have other skills, Brent. <laughs> I might be able to still do this podcast on the side of my home renovation stuff, but uh, yeah, I don't know what to say.
1: Yeah. Well, I saw the pictures of your table that you redid, which looks really cool. And I also saw that you only spent $40 on renovating it, which was also pretty cool.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I'm, I'm savvy with the money. Although if luckily with the picture, it's pretty far away. But when you actually get up close, you can see that the wood split and I've got cracks in the table already. And if you really put your hands on it, you can kind of get some gashes now. So just see it from far away. and just appreciate it from far away. Don't, don't look at the minor details, you know, up front yet.
1: You mean you're embarrassed about all of its character?
2: Okay. Okay. I like that. there see? you go. There yeah. you go. Character. You
1: just need to reframe character. the question.
2: Okay. It has There's- a
1: lot of character, I can tell.
2: Mhm, mm-hmm. And I could say that's our first, you know, actual wood building. We had the saws out, completely redid the table, you know, like the cabinets were just a fresh coat of paint, but the table, you're right. So it's it's our first baby project. And, you know, maybe 10 tables from now we'll see the progression and the character will change. I like this.
0: I'm uh, sure it will. I like the narrative. I'm sure
1: you gotta, you gotta let the life of the wood just come out.
2: Right? Yeah, <laughs> exactly.
1: Well, speaking about life, uh, today we are talking about estate planning, and I didn't think there was anybody better to do that with than Sean Garner. Sean is a partner in the law firm Decent Garner. Uh, Decent Garner Hanson, I think. I, Sean, will correct me if I got the, the name wrong. It is.
0: It was Decent and Garner for a long time, and now it's Decent Garner and Hanson. So both ways are right, but uh, the Hanson part is the, the current name. Yeah. Don't uh, don't don't tell Adam that i I left his
1: name off of the name of the firm I, and I didn't mean it in any sort of offensive way, of course. Uh, but Sean is, uh, obviously a lawyer. He is resident in Yuma, Arizona practices. There has a, a substantial estate playing practice in Yuma, I would say for certainly by Yuma standards and, uh, is somebody that I think is very bright and very capable in this area. And I think is going to lend a lot of good value to this conversation. So Sean, thank you so much for joining us
0: yeah thank you for having me brent i'm excited to be here i uh typically do a radio show um weekly about estate planning and uh, I like this opportunity to have this conversation with um, other professionals and get a little bit more into concepts that maybe don't come out on the radio where just um, we have callers that call in a, on a regular basis and, and have generic questions typically about what to do with their lottery winnings and so <laughs> I'm, I'm interested to see what kind of conversation this will or
1: what uh, path this will lead down. Hopefully slightly more practical than the lot- lottery winnings question. Right.
2: (laughs) Well, what I was thinking we could talk about, uh, Sean and Brent, this sounds okay with you guys. So just starting off with the basics, right? So estate planning, what the heck is an estate? You know, I think that's the first good thing, first thing that we should really define and kind of what it entails. And then um, I was thinking we kind of explain it as we put the documents together, right? So let's look at what a trust is and um, why someone would need a trust. And then looking at um, a will, of course everyone knows that last will and testament is an important document, so let's talk about that. And then powers of attorney and why those are also very essential documents in an estate plan. So how's that sound like a plan for tonight?
0: That sounds great. I like that you brought up the issue of what is an estate or the question because there is a huge misconception out there that um, an estate is only something that is held by a very wealthy individual or family that involves um, a big white house at the end of a long driveway lined with oak trees. And if you don't have that, then you don't have an estate and you don't need to worry about a trust or an estate plan. And Contrary to popular belief, most people have estates. If you have assets that have titles, you have an estate. So if you have a bank account or a car or a house or perhaps all three, you have an estate. And some planning needs to be done to make sure that those assets can be handled in the event you become incapacitated or when you die. So that's the whole idea of an estate plan. And there's a variety of ways that you can go about handling that. And you you brought up the idea of a trust. And that is a very popular and efficient way to put together an estate plan. So the question then is, what is a trust? And and that was a concept that even in law school, and I'll ad- frankly admit, I had a hard time wrapping my head around it. it it's not something that you can touch. It, it wasn't something that was tangible. And so I I couldn't really conceive of how I could put my property into this entity that didn't even exist. So what I like to do to to paint a visual image about what a trust is, is think of a treasure chest. And you're going to put all of your assets into this treasure chest. So you can put the car into the treasure chest and the bank account into the treasure chest and the house. You can even put a business or intellectual property like um, your Bitcoin and and your your book rights and other things like that into this treasure chest. It's a chest that is very um, versatile. It can hold all different types of assets. And so when I visualize it that way, it helps me really conceptualize more what a trust is also if you think of it in the way of like a business mcdonald's or walmart those are businesses they're not people they're things that own property and so a trust is a lot like a business in that sense it can own asset now in the sense of personal estate planning the trust is formed specifically to hold your personal property for the purpose of managing that property in the event you become incapacitated. So a court won't have to get involved and appoint a guardian or a conservator to manage your affairs. And uh, the person that you trust, that you decide in advance to make those decisions, can jump right in and have control to manage your day-to-day finances as you would have them do it. And the trust allows that to happen. And then, when you die, what a trust does is allows um, your family and friends to avoid probate because the assets are titled in an entity that doesn't die. It's it's immortal, if you will. It continues living on, but the management structure of the trust continues living with it. So. You are the initial manager as the trustee, and when you can't manage any longer, you name your best friend or your wife or your child to manage those assets for you, and when you pass on to distribute those assets to the individuals you would like them to have. And because that structure is set up, it's a jurisdiction in and of itself. It doesn't require court oversight. It doesn't require court intervention at all. So it allows your property to pass to the people that you want to have it um, seamlessly without any additional attorney's fees or court fees. And properly done, it can also cut down on taxes that could be avoided with proper planning. So it's a good way for people to achieve what they want to get done and, and get the government out of their way in getting it done
1: which I think are all very noble goals. That's not necessarily to say that the the courts are bad. Uh, they, they have a very useful purpose. It's just that the courts, in my experience, I don't know if it's the same for you, Sean, in this context of dealing with someone's estate or someone's assets are sort of like a
0: blunt instrument when you need a very sharp scalpel. Absolutely. And what I've seen is not only are the courts not as well prepared to handle these types of matters, but they don't want to. They don't want to be engaged in these uh, family affairs and the distribution of individual heirlooms and property. They would they would prefer that the family have an agreement beforehand and and divide up these assets without its intervention. So the court is one facet of the government that really generally isn't overreaching and isn't over anxious to get involved in your your life and, and the life of the, your or your affairs and your family affairs. Yeah. And then when you do the planning, the way that you're describing
1: it, the court's role, if it has a role, is really just a backstop to resolve any issues that come up. And typically these are unanticipated issues. You know, real fights that come up among the family. The court's in the background and they're going to be called into action only when somebody asks them to. But otherwise, the court's not going to be involved because nobody's going to ask them to be involved. And as you say, they don't have any, the court has no interest in making itself involved without somebody asking. And the court basically agreeing, you know, there has to be
0: actual grounds for somebody to drag the court in. That's right. In fact, that's often a case or a question that comes up uh, when people come in and and talk with me and a loved one has passed away. They say, when does the court come in and begin to to settle this estate? When am I going to start to receive my inheritance? I haven't received any notice from the court. And I have to educate them that the court isn't going to um, proactively get involved in your affairs. Somebody's going to have to file a petition to open up a probate and to take control of this estate and start um, being getting authority from the court so they can start controlling the assets, paying off the creditors, and, and um, then delivering the remainder of the assets to the, the intended beneficiaries or heirs. But the court is sitting back even in a probate matter where it requires court intervention in order to distribute an estate in a trust it's even more so it's even it's even further in the background where the trust as long as it's properly created it's going to outline very specifically who has authority to manage the assets it's also going to outline what the assets are and that is absolutely critical Um, there is no database that I'm aware of. I'm sure the government has one, but I don't have access to it. And I'm not sure of any um, attorney, private attorney that has access to it, that you can dive into and get a list of a decedent's bank accounts and vehicles. And real property is a little bit different because you can search for real property and there are becoming more extensive databases for that. But you still have to kind of search county by county or state by state to find real property. Whereas with um, cr- like with debt, you can do a credit report and you can find a majority, if not all of the debt that an individual has out there, but you can't do that with assets. So what a trust does is it encourages the individual that's planning and putting together the trust to list all of their assets. And that's typically listed on what we call a schedule A. And so they list each bank account they have. I bank at Wells Fargo. I bank at Chase. I bank also at First Bank and I bank at uh, Capital One. Oh, by the way, I have this, this uh, credit union that I opened up an account when I was in school and I, I put some money away there and now it's you know accrued interest and now it's $5,000. That's all money that would be lost or very difficult to find for your family members if you don't list it out. So the trust encourages individuals to list out each asset and so your manager or your successor trustee can have a treasure map to follow and and determine, okay, these are the assets that we have. Now, I get to look at the next line in the trust or the next provision, and I'll have instructions as to what to do with these assets. So, not only does it guide them to the assets, but it gives them instructions on what to do with the assets.
1: Can you explain a little bit, Sean, um, the idea of getting assets into the trust? You know, if you're going to have, say, like a Schedule A, as you're describing, that lists out the assets that are trust assets, how does a person who, once they've created the trust, which basically means that they're signing a document that says they're forming the trust. You know, How do they go from that point to now they have actually made their personal assets trust assets? What is
0: that process like? Okay. That's a great question. So we call that process funding. And that is the process of transferring the title of an asset out of your name individually into the name of the trust, this entity that we've just created. And we've literally created out of thin air we've written down created a document that says this is a trust this is the jane doe trust or the jones family trust and now it exists there are three parties that participate in a trust and um, they are the trustor settlor sometimes or grantor all of those are um, synonyms for the same thing and that is the creator of the trust the person that creates the trust So if you think creator, then settlor or trustor, that will follow along the same thought pattern. That is the person that gets to decide um, what the terms of the trust are. And they also generally contribute the assets to the trust. Then there's the trustee, and that's just a fancy legal term for manager. So I I use those two terms back and forth, and manager or the trustee gets to determine how those assets are used. And then finally, the best role is the beneficiary. And that's self-explanatory. You get a benefit from the assets in the trust. Now, when let's say um, Bill and Mary create their trust, they come into me and they want a trust created, we're gonna create the Bill and Mary Jones Family Trust. They are every one of those roles. They are the trustors, they are the trustees, and they are the beneficiaries they have put the assets in the trust, they get to manage the trust, and they get to benefit from the assets in the trust. So when they are asked who are the beneficiaries of their trust, they may be inclined to say their children, but they would be wrong because their beneficiaries are actually them. Their children, who are named further on down in the trust, are contingent beneficiaries, and I would say that's contingent on them not mouthing off at dinner, Before Bill and Mary pass away, right? (laughs) Uh, When Bill and Mary die, then yes, um, John and Susan, their children, they are beneficiaries, but that's contingent on them still being named in the beneficiary position when that triggering event of death occurs. So funding the trust now is a process of Bill and Mary actually going to the bank with this document that they've created with the assistance of their um, estate planning attorney, hopefully, and they go to the bank and they say, okay, Wells Fargo, we've got our checking account here and we've got our savings account here and it's in both of our names, but we want it in the Jones Family Trust, this entity, because this entity will continue to live beyond us and it will continue to exist." and be functional when we're incapacitated. And we're gonna name managers, our daughter Susan, she's an accountant, but more than that, she's just trustworthy. She she realizes what we would want to have happen with our assets when we become incapacitated, and she'll do that. More, Moreover, we've got instructions in the trust to help give her guidance on that. So the account then, with the assistance of the banker can be transferred over into the name of the trust. And now the trust literally owns the account. Now that scares the pants out of a lot of, a lot of people that they think they're giving away their assets. It's like, I've, I've worked so hard for this account and the money that's in there. Why would I give it away? You're not giving it away. Remember, you still have total control over it. In fact, you're you're extending that control to the point that even when you're incapacitated, those assets can only be used for your benefit whereas some people want to create a shortcut and they name a child as a joint owner on the account and they think that that's going to um, accomplish their goal of allowing their account to be managed when they're incapacitated but what they don't realize is they're exposing that account to that child's liabilities and that child may be honest as the day is long, but that doesn't mean that they are exempt or that they are, are safe from the liabilities that surround them like a car accident or, or divorce, which is probably the number one liability that Americans face. And so you certainly don't want to name or expose your account, your, your, your assets, to any more liabilities, putting it in the trust Funding it into the trust does what you both want to do um, in in a practical way and accomplishes it in a legal way, too. So Mary or sorry, uh, John John and Mary, who own the assets, can now have Susan manage it. And if Susan goes through a divorce, they they don't have to have any preoccupation whatsoever that um, that account is going to be. included in the divorce proceedings. It's going to be completely protected from that divorce proceedings because it is not Susan's property and therefore not going to be divided up in the divorce.
1: Yeah. Really good stuff. Okay. So you've, you've teed up a couple of issues here, uh, intentionally or not, that I think we, we ought to talk about cause these are really, really, really critical issues. So first of all, um, you've, you've explained a joint trust between two married individuals. And I just want to maybe drill down on that topic just a little bit. And then you've also described, um, kind of two different ways that the trust that you're describing, which I I would call like a revocable trust or a living trust. I don't know how you guys exactly describe it in your
0: office, but you know, one of the two, um, We would use both names, revocable living trust, and the reason is because most of the trusts that we create, the individuals, our clients, they want to have the ability to change and modify the trust as as um, life happens and changes occur. So they they retain that authority to amend the trust in any way that they wish, up to revoking the entire trust. So there's where the term revocable comes in, and living is because they're actually transferring assets to the trust while they're alive, as opposed to most um, planning prior to the, the trust planning was done or triggered upon your death. So the asset actually didn't get transferred until you died. Whereas a trust, the asset gets transferred while you're alive. And that's where the term living trust comes from. It's it's transferred during life.
1: Yeah. So yeah, so if anybody if anybody hears either of those two terms or the combination of them, they're they are what Sean is describing. Or if you hear intervivos trust, it's it's a living trust. Uh, but I think the issues that you've teed up are how you then use a revocable living intervivos trust to number one protect you should you become incapacitated, and then number two dispose of your assets when you die. So maybe maybe just to jump back thematically on these two things that I think you've teed up. First of all, um, maybe just to describe a little bit about the character of assets that can go into the trust and why what you're describing with a, a joint trust between two spouses might work and then maybe get into the other. So so like, you know, we're in Arizona. Arizona is a community property state. There's I can't remember exactly how many other community property states. I think there's like eight or nine, something somewhere in there. I could be off by a a couple. Um, Please forgive me if I forgot your state. But the the general rule with community property, although it works slightly differently in different jurisdictions, the general rule is that both spouses own 50% of all of the assets that they acquire and all of the income that they earn during marriage. And so when and sorry, in addition to that, both spouses under most circumstances with some limitations are able to manage those assets on their own. They don't need the consent of the other spouse to manage those assets. So if that's the case and you, you own everything as community property, then it's pretty easy to put everything together because you own everything anyways, to put everything together into one joint trust when you're married. It's fairly commonly in non-community property states so-called... uh, common law states, um, and most of the states that fit into that are basically uh, not Western states. Um, in those states, it's fairly common. Number one, you don't have community property, and number two, that spouses would each have their own, like each spouse would have their own trust. Uh, the trust would kind of work in in tandem together, but they very commonly are two separate documents. I think theoretically you could have it still have a joint trust, but I'm just saying, like as a matter of practice, what I see coming from people who are Moving from those states, like in Illinois or you know Midwestern states, for example, are all common law states. Uh, maybe with the exception of Wisconsin, but um, they they typically, as a matter of practice, each spouse uh, will form their own revocable living or inter vivos trust. So just understand that kind of that mechanism. It's a it's a product of the character under state law of the marital assets that the couple owns. That's kind of where that that little nuance comes from. So if anybody listening is thinking like, well, I don't, I've never seen a joint trust between spouses, for example, that's why it's probably because you're in a a common law state, not a community property state. Okay. So then the, the, these kind of dual benefits that we were talking about, can you drill down just a little bit on the incapacity planning? Cause I hear a lot, I, I get a lot of questions from clients or from advisors about, well, you know, can't we just do a joint Account? Is, is that a good idea? Can't I just put
0: PODs
1: on bank accounts or, you know, we have what's called a beneficiary deed on real estate in Arizona where you can name a beneficiary who succeeds to your title on real estate. Can't we just do that? Won't that solve the problem? And I'm assuming you hear that too. So, what is it that the trust adds to that conversation?
0: Yeah, I hear that constantly. And the reason most people wanna do that is because you know, they, they've they seen their parents do it and one parent passes away and the other parent continues to manage those assets and they didn't see any big legal fees or court intervention. And, and, and they thought, well, that's that's a great way to do it. And, and it worked for mom and dad, so it should work for me. Um, the fly in the ointment is the second death is one. So mom passes away and dad still has the bank account that was joint and now it's his account and he can continue maintaining it. When he passes away, then whose account is it? Is we've got to either go back to state law and determine who is going to receive that account if he doesn't have a will, or we've got to probate the will Either way, we're going to end up in court and determine who is going to receive that account. So it's on the second death where the issue really rears its head. And um, second of all, the thing that is really common, more common than it is not, is incapacity. Uh, The the statistics are that 70% of us will live for approximately two years in a state of incapacity before we pass away. So you're more likely than not to be incapacitated before you pass away. And to not plan for incapacity is is just it's it's a failure to recognize the facts and reality of, of life in general. So the what the trust does is it covers that that gap of being alive and sharp and 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 able to manage your affairs and then passed away. And so when you have a beneficiary designation on a bank account or on an IRA or on any type of uh, uh, asset, whether it's a house, it can also be even a car can have a beneficiary designation. People think that that's a quick and easy way for their um, children or whoever they intend to receive their asset to receive that without court or attorney intervention. But what they're missing is when they become incapacitated, They haven't died, so they haven't triggered the individual's authority to manage that asset, and they don't want to give it to that individual yet because they still need to use that asset for their benefit. But they haven't either given that, uh, that individual, the beneficiary, that asset control to manage it for them. So they're kind of in no man's land. And what has to happen at that point is somebody that has their interest in mind needs to file a petition with the court for a conservatorship so they can have now control over the assets for the benefit of the person that's incapacitated. And that is really uh, not a fun uh, event for anybody, not for the person that's filing the motion and not for the person that is actually incapacitated because you can have to go through court through this public forum and you have to prove that your family member or your friend is incapacitated. You're gonna to have to present doctor's testimony that your friend can't manage their own affairs. You're gonna to have to present um, a court appointed investigator's testimony that your friend is not with it anymore. And that's not a fun job to have. And then when you get appointed as a conservator, you get the court looking over your shoulder for every penny that you spend on behalf of mom and dad your friend and um, you can very easily be acting in a way that is altruistic and 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 you're trying to do your best which is you think that's in the best interest of your friend or parent and go awry of the law and not file the proper accountings with the courts and find yourself in trouble so not only is it a pain in the neck um, but it is expensive it requires attorneys you generally need a hire an attorney to represent you, to become the conservator. The court is going to appoint an attorney to represent the incapacitated parent or friend. And uh, so now we got two attorneys working together, racking up attorney's fees, and you got court fees to go along with that. So if you would just put the asset in the trust prior to that and pick the individual that you have the most confidence in to act in your best interest when you become incapacitated, you could avoid all of that. And since 70% of us are gonna go through this phase of incapacity, we really need to take that seriously and put these assets in a trust, name our person to manage our assets and allow that to to take place without court court intervention. The asset protection, I think was the second component of your question there, and that deserves a lot of clarification. Many people have the misconception that if they put an asset into a trust, it's protected and they won't lose it in a lawsuit or um, if they were to go into a bad business deal. And that's just not the case. With most trusts that... that I deal with, where people are dealing for um, planned giving to to distribute their assets upon death, It's it's a revocable living trust, and they put the assets into the trust, they get the benefit of the assets while it's in the trust, they can even take the assets back out of the trust. And so in that sense, the law treats those assets as if they were still owned by the individual that created and funded the trust. So there is no asset protection for the creator or the trustor of the trust. So, um, and you think about that, it, it, if it sounds too good to be true, it usually is. And that is one of those cases. You, you can't just put all of your property into a trust, continue to benefit from it, continue to manage it and stop paying your bills and think nothing's gonna happen. That That just doesn't work. Um, but there is an asset protection component of it, and that is where the manager, they could run into liabilities and and their liabilities don't affect your assets. So your best friend might be super true and trustworthy to you, but maybe he's not the greatest driver, okay? And maybe they text while they're driving and they're going down through a school zone and they're texting and they hit a a kid in a crosswalk, right? Worst scenario possible, okay? So they're going to be sued and they might lose everything, but they're not going to lose your assets because they don't actually own your assets. The trust owns your assets, and they're being held there for your benefit. So despite the fact that your friend is a terrible driver, still good person, still going to manage your assets for your benefit, and his creditors are not going to have any access or any legal grounds to get access to your trust.
1: Yeah, so critical, and probably in, in my mind, the the biggest advantage to having a revocable trust versus trying to kind of short circuit the process with say a joint account I mean, you just you don't get that that asset protection quote unquote asset protection buffer as you've described it that really thinking about like asset protection from the claims of the person who is trying to manage the account for you, not your, not your own creditor claims. And then the protection from hopefully the need for a conservatorship proceeding. I mean, this time of year, um, we, we handle a handful of conservatorships that are just kind of ongoing. And this time of year we're dealing with filing accountings and things. Uh, Rachel's been neck deep in that stuff. Mm -hmm. So Rachel, just describe a little bit the level of detail that goes into the accounting, hopefully, so that people get a flavor for um, how difficult it is to put these things together.
2: Yeah. I it's
1: would say a bitter taste. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> it's extremely detailed, Sean. Like you were saying, there's, there's so many people who now have to get involved. You talked about how you know, a, typically you, you would have to hire an attorney to help you file all these documents with the court. Um, you have to create a budget for the courts. Like you said, every penny that you are um, going to be you know, spending money on for mom or your friend, you have to create a budget at the beginning of the year thinking, all right, what am I going to spend this money on? If you go over the budget by a certain amount, you have to send the court a revised budget. And then every single year uh, for the for the duration of the conservatorship which is basically until the incapacitated person passes away or they're determined not to be incapacitated anymore you have to file annual accounting so every single year like you said you have to show all the receipts this is this is exactly what we've spent the money on um, the court has to look it over make sure that it's okay that they were good uh, you know, good expenses to have. They have to look at the income. Make sure that if you're investing, that you didn't uh, that you're investing prudently. Uh, there's real property involved, so houses, land that that's being managed properly. And typically, to help with the accounting, you need to hire an accountant to help you fill out that. So there's another person involved. There's more fees. I mean, it's. The, the documents involved, are it's just so much that really, like you said, it can be avoided with a trust. And, and we just can't stress it enough to our clients that the way to go to really avoid this and to have this incapacity planning is to have a trust and then fund that trust, like you were saying.
1: Yeah, the the client almost inevitably saves the attorney's fees pretty quickly by avoiding the conservatorship and doing the trust planning up front. At least that's been my experience. So, have either of you seen? There's a hashtag going around that is it's something like "Free Britney Spears" or "Free Britney." Have either of you seen this? So,
0: yes, yes, that, <laughs> that's on
2: TikTok, and I've seen, I've seen Britney's videos on TikTok.
0: I haven't, so, but that that's not to say anything. I mean, as far as social media, I might as well be hiding under a rock. So,
1: <laughs> well, let me. Uh, I'll, I'll tee it up for you. I'll yeah. tee it up for you. So. The basic premise of the Free Britney hashtag is uh, a theory. You might call it a conspiracy theory. We'll just call it a theory that she... She's under a conservatorship in California, which is based the same thing in Arizona. Uh, I think it's her dad who's the conservator. And that somehow the conservatorship was uh, imposed on her under somewhat false pretenses and continues to be imposed on her under somewhat false pretenses. And she can't make her own decisions and she can't manage her own finances, etc. I have no special information about like the details and facts of her case and why it is that a conservatorship was necessary. But I have read a little bit of the theories behind you know, what was happening why people think that it was not proper. And there's a theory about how she couldn't hire her own attorney and all this stuff. It's like, well, uh, her dad had to have an attorney. California, I believe, and, uh, appoints uh, an investigator just like Arizona does. I believe they appoint court-appointed counsel just like Arizona does. You have to have a, a hearing. You have to have several several weeks' worth of notice before the hearing. You have to prove a legal basis for having a conservatorship, which, by the way, in Arizona doesn't mean that you cannot handle your finances. It could be you're an alcoholic and you're then subject to a conservatorship. So it doesn't have to be something like where you just can't make any decisions whatsoever. You don't have to be a vegetable for a conservatorship to apply. But the ultimate result, and I think the thing that maybe is a little bit, bit jarring for people who are involved in this hashtag Slash discussion. The jarring thing is that the the result of a conservatorship ultimately is that your constitutional rights are suspended by court order. You know, so ordinarily you have the constitutional right to deal with your finances however you want. When there's a conservatorship, you don't have that right anymore. Uh, it's given to somebody else. And the beauty of having the trust is that you, yes, you are giving that authority to another person, but you can revoke it. You can amend it whenever you want. You don't have to go to court to do that. And it's the person that you choose. Now, it could have been that Britney Spears, at whatever age it was, 21 or whatever, when the conservatorship was appointed, would have choos- chosen her dad anyways. But ultimately, the trustees that you want are the people who are going to serve for you. It's not going to be somebody who's who's appointed on you by the court. And that's really the, the elegance to using a trust and avoiding that conservatorship trust, uh, not trust, but uh, conservatorship court proceeding. It just makes things private and it gives you more control
0: over the outcome because you don't have to involve a third party. And I think you really hit on it when you said that you get to choose the person. I oftentimes have individuals come in and it's somewhat surprising to me uh, when I ask who do you want to manage your affairs um, if you become incapacitated? And they look at me like a deer in the headlight as if that question came out of left field. And I thought, well, what did you think I was going to ask when you came into this meeting? Yeah. Uh, We're going to plan your your estate. We have to choose individuals. Who do you want to manage your affairs? But um, more to the point, even if they say, I don't know, and let's move on i don't i don't move on i press the issue because i say okay let me put it a different way either you choose or the court's going to choose and even your worst decision is probably going to be better than the court's decision so let's hear some candidates and that gets people put in the right frame of mind for deciding because that's the reality of it the court who thinks, who goes to sleep, and, and, and it feels comfortable, warm, and cozy that the court is going to make the best decision for who's going to manage their affairs over them? That that That's not real. So it it's better for you to choose an imperfect person than to allow the court to reach out and select somebody for you.
2: And I think, yeah. too, you brought up a good point, Sean, which is we have a lot of clients who maybe they don't have kids, right? And maybe all their family is... Becky's and they're here in Arizona. So they're like, you know what? I don't know. I don't really have anyone here. Well, it's your choice, right? So you can choose a private fiduciary. You can yeah. choose, for example, if, if you're worried about, um, for say you have kids, and maybe they don't make the smartest financial decisions, and you're really worried about having them as a trustee. Well, then you can appoint a bank who acts as a private fiduciary for you. It really is your choice. It allows you to have that freedom, like you said. Otherwise, it's going to be up to someone else to decide for you.
0: And as far as the law goes in Arizona, the bank Has no priority to step in and act as a conservator. So the the court is never going to select a bank. The court is never going to select um, an accounting firm that you trust. The the court is going to either select a child or a relative because they have higher priority than any institution. Um, I'm trying to think, other than uh, a private fiduciary that is licensed with the Supreme Court, no third party has any priority or standing to become a conservator if you haven't appointed them in advance. So you you really got to take that decision and and make it before it gets into the court's hands.
1: Yep. And I, I always tell people uh, when we're talking about trust or we're just sort of talking about their estate planning gener- generally, we're talking about this issue of selecting uh, the person that they want who's going to step into their shoes. I always try and emphasize like this is for incapacity purposes. Yes, when you die, they're going to have to be there to dole out the trust the way you want them to dole out the trust and to do all the administrative things that go along with having a trust or not having a trust, frankly, Um, but they're gonna be there for you while you're alive. And that's the only part of this continuum where you are around. Like, so you should care the most about that piece of it. When you're dead, you will not care right? Like you will not care when you're deceased. They could do whatever they want and it won't bother you one bit because you'll be, you'll be gone. But while you're alive, you're going to care a heck of a lot about what's happening.
0: And we hear that a lot, don't we? Where we, When we're trying to emphasize the importance of estate planning, we hear, I don't care what happens to my stuff when I die. Oh yeah. Okay. But what about when you're laying on your back in, in the hospital or at home? Do you care who's managing your affairs then? Because that is really what we're talking about, that's a big portion of it.
1: Yeah. So um, what about, and this is not to cut you off if, if there's something else you want to say about trust, but what about then the other documents, I think probably traditional documents that people might think of in terms of estate planning. What about those documents? And then how do they fit into the overall picture if somebody has a revocable trust? So they've gone to somebody like you, they've had a very good and, and uh, valuable conversation, kind of like the one that we've just had. They've said, yes, let's do the trust.
0: What about everything else? So the traditional estate planning and all the components of it are still involved. We don't throw out the baby with the bath water. The will is still an important document to have. And it's a a companion document with the trust. When we create a will in conjunction with the trust, we call it a pour over will. Like you pour a bucket of water over into maybe a larger bucket. Um, The will will state that you uh, desire that everything go to your trust if you didn't put it in your trust while you were alive. And sometimes that's by oversight. Sometimes you buy a car and the car wasn't titled in the name of the trust. And so the will needs to state because you own the car in your name when you die, now the estate owns the car. The will directs um, the personal representative to pass that car over to the trust which got a whole bunch of provisions that it, that states how that is going to be handled and who the beneficiaries are. So the will is an important component of the trust. And there are even some assets that you can't put into a trust uh, before you pass away. For example, let's say you die on an operating table and there was a medical malpractice suit, okay? Well, that's a, that's a big asset. That couldn't have been put in the trust. So your will is going to be the instrument that will pass that asset once that settlement occurs into the trust. So the will is, is a critical document that you want to have in conjunction with the trust. Another important document is a power of attorney. And so people many times ask, well, what is the difference between a durable power of attorney and a limited power of attorney? And the primary difference is the length of time or um, the subject matter or, or the, the type of assets that it controls. Um, a durable power of attorney and a general durable power of attorney is the most common, And that means that it gives very broad sweeping authority for an individual to act on your behalf as if they were you legally to manage your legal affairs, financial affairs, um, contracting, so on and so forth. And it's durable, meaning there isn't a time that it expires. It doesn't end at at a specific time. Limited power of attorney would be for maybe just the purchase of a car or the selling of a car or house, or for a limited period of time. Um, service men and women have a power of attorney that I believe is required when you're in the service that they have these estate planning documents um, prepared, but they're they're limited for a period of one year at a time. And so if they don't renew it after that, then they expire and and, and they have no force or validity. So the power of attorney is important because there are some legal decisions that need to be made. if you're incapacitated, that the trust doesn't have authority. Or for example, if there's some negotiations to be made with the health insurance company about payments to be made to the hospital, that's not authority that the trustee has. That's something that a power, an agent under a power of attorney is going to need to exercise on your behalf. There's also healthcare decisions that need to be made. So you want your healthcare power of attorney. And oftentimes, um, those are different people. Maybe you've got son that is very practical and and financially um, astute, and he's gonna be your legal power of attorney and trustee, but daughter is more compassionate and knows what you would want to have done if you're in the hospital and you need long-term care, so she's your health care power of attorney. And so those are two completely separate documents that control separate issues altogether and that healthcare power of attorney is critical. Uh, we look at us today in this world with COVID where you can be fine one day and in the hospital on a respirator the next day, you need somebody to be your voice. And that's literally what a healthcare power of attorney does is it, it allows someone that you depend on, you, you trust to be your voice in those situations. Um, another document that is important is what's called a living will which I think is a terrible name for the document because it has nothing to do with a will or the, the management of property or the dist- distribution of property. Um, it's a, a more, I think, accurate name for it is an advanced directive. And so those two things are the same. And what it is, is it's a directive to the doctors that are caring for you and your family that you want to have certain medical care and no more at a point in life where you're maintained on life support. Most people, a a vast majority of them, do not want to live on life support when they're a vegetable, when their quality of life is essentially non-existent. And they would rather die of natural causes, and they'd like to be kept comfortable on morphine but but pass away naturally and um that can that can create a big fight among family members when uh that decision is to be made and it hasn't been spelled out in advance so be kind to your family and make your wishes known so that burden and that guilt isn't laid upon their shoulders when they have to um, decide to um, make that decision. You've already spelled it out in advance for them and given them that, that authority. So those those are some ancillary documents that um, are all necessary in conjunction with the trust to have a comprehensive estate plan.
2: Yeah, Brett and I talk about how, especially like you said, nowadays with COVID, the healthcare power attorney literally is the most important document you could have. I mean, of course, we, for the reasons we all just discussed, we, you, we want the trust, we want a will, the financial power of attorney, but your healthcare power of attorney is truly important right now during this time. It doesn't matter how old you are. If you are 18 years old, you need to have a healthcare power of attorney. And it really is, like you said, a, a an instruction list. So we prepare our healthcare power of attorney together with a living will as one document, just kind of one packet together. And we really like to describe the living will as the, like you said, the instructions for your family members to take that burden off of them. You know, if something should happen to you all of a sudden, and maybe you didn't have that discussion with them in person, they can look to that document and go, okay, this is what I know. This is, I, I know what mom wants. It's not on me to make it to fight with my brother about what mom would or would have wanted, it's all right here. And it also um, spells out a lot of other instructions on do you want to be cremated, do you want to be buried, where do you want your ashes spread if you're cremated? A bunch of other really important questions that, again, just helps take that burden off of your loved ones when already it's not an enjoyable time.
1: So let me tee up uh, Let me tee up a question for you, Sean. I'm curious to get your take on this that I get from clients from time to time. So let's say a uh, husband and wife are clients, they have two kids and we have this whole conversation about, you know, who do you want to name and for all the reasons that we've been talking about. And they say, Well, we want the kids to serve together. What do you say to
0: them? Well, it rarely works out. Um, And the reason why is because there is no right way to manage a trust. There's a lot of different ways. For example, the house often needs to be sold when you pass away. What is the right price to accept for a house? Who is the right realtor? Is a realtor the right person to do it or should you sell it? Um, for sale by owner. Uh, those are all decisions that there's no right or wrong answer to it, but uh, they're decisions that when you put both children in control of making it and you require them to make it together, you you've essentially set them in a collision course, and and instead of accomplishing what you would want to accomplish, and that is working together and and managing final affairs together and becoming closer at this point they're they're generally going to argue. And there's a couple reasons that I think that occurs. When you get appointed and put in that position of authority, there's this mantle that you feel placed on your shoulders that you've got to take some additional thought and research this issue. And when you do that, you invest in your own conclusion. And your sibling is going to invest in their own conclusion. And they're Rarely going to be the same, and so now they're going to argue to support their own conclusion, and so it's rarely going to um, provide that uh, cooperation that you're seeking. It's going to, it's going to, it's going to uh, cause fighting and resentment, and it's going to double the length of the administration of the trust because now you need two people doing one person's job.
1: Yeah, I, I essentially say the same thing. And I think it's especially acute in the healthcare area as well. Every now and then I'll have a client who'll say, well, we want we want to name both kids as agents for us for healthcare decisions. And I, I almost always tell them, don't do it. It's not a good idea. That That's a position where they're going to have to be making critical, potentially emergency decisions. And you do not want to have to have two voices. Sometimes uh, clients will follow up that conversation with a, well, but I." we want them to have to work together. We want them to have to talk to each other. And I just tell them, there's nothing to say they can't work together and talk to each other. It's just the final word needs to come down to one person. One person needs to be the one to say, all right, this is how we're doing it. They can talk about it Tell so their faces, blue with their siblings, and share as much information as they want, but one person needs to be the one to make the decision. You need to know where to go uh, in those critical moments uh, to get an answer, and you don't want it. You especially don't want to have to have any sort of deadlock in a position where you need a critical answer.
0: Absolutely right, and I, and I often tell them if your children are all trustworthy, if, if you if they feel you know that you're they're going to make good decisions for you no matter which child it is, then there is no wrong choice as to which child you choose. The only wrong choice is choosing more than one. Yeah.
2: And I think it's important to point out too if you pick just one child it doesn't mean they don't get to talk to the other their siblings about it and I think that's the main thing like Brent pointed out you need one person to make that decision if your kids all get along and you think they are going to work together then just pick one person to make that decision and your kids probably will work together to make that decision coming to it and then that one person is going to be the one who reports and actually, you know, tells the doctor, whoever it needs to be, what that decision is.
1: Yeah. I think sometimes people have an idea that there's a benefit or an honor to being named in these roles. This stuff is work. Like This is not like, you're not doing anybody a favor. This is a job and it takes a ton of time and energy and effort. Like it's, it is a, it's a real burden and it puts put somebody in your pack as well. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Now before anybody calls me a hypocrite, have I drafted documents with multiple pe- people named? Yeah. Cause sometimes, uh, even though I try to dissuade clients, they, they are not persuaded by me. And ultimately as the attorney, it's not my role to pick the people. So if the client is insistent, despite my recommendations that it, it be otherwise, um, I don't stand in their way because that's really their choice, but I absolutely do my best to persuade them otherwise.
0: Yeah, we do the same thing here. Um, I, I, I do my very best. Sometimes I say, "You pick, just pick one," and I feel like that is my role as as the counselor, as as the attorney. They're paying me good money to give them advice, and if I'm not doing that for them, if I'm just letting them kind of run rampant with their own concepts, then why are they even paying me? Yep. Exactly. And I think that's, uh, that's the biggest
1: distinction or the biggest value add that a professional like yourself and and I don't, sorry, I didn't tee this up at the beginning when we started talking, but if it isn't apparent to everybody already, like this is all you do right? Like this is your entire practice. So every day you do this. Um, And I think the biggest value add for somebody who hires a professional like you versus, for example, going to a legal Zoom or any of the other kind of document preparation type websites is that unless you really have a very firm grasp on all the issues, all of the law, and we've talked about all sorts of different types of laws here, trust laws and the laws of wills and the laws of powers of attorney and the laws of conservatorships and probates and et cetera. Unless somebody has all of that background knowledge plus all of the experience of seeing how these things actually play out in real life, going and grabbing documents is not actually quote-unquote planning. It's just getting documents. The planning piece is the counseling and the advising and the foreseeing issues down the road based on the facts that are presented to you. I think that's really where uh, professionals like yourself start adding a lot of value for clients.
0: Well, and something that helps them understand the the gravity of what we're doing here is when I say, if you were to go online and do the fill in the blank document and the the document is great, it, it's written, it could be the best trust in the world, but you're really gonna have a gut check when that trust is printed out and you sign it. And remember, it's no good until you put all of your assets into it. So now um, when you're signing that deed over into this trust that you just created and was spit out on the computer, that's when it gets real. I'm putting my house into this thing. I'm putting my accounts into this thing. What type of accounts should you put into this thing? What type of accounts will it cause um, tax implications and, and and accelerate the taxes of accounts like an IRA or, or uh, an annuity or any other deferred type of tax account to put in the trust? So it's not just naming the right people in the right order. It's understanding that the assets need to be placed in there and you need to have that level of comfort that you're still going to be able to control those assets. And if any issue comes up, there's going to be someone that you can go and sit in front of and say, "That's my asset out there, and you help me put this together. I would like to do this with it." Now, how do I accomplish that? Because go ahead and ask the computer that, or type that into the little chat box on on LegalZoom and uh, see what level of comfort you get there. It, it's that that that's where it gets real. So what? Uh, so talking about kind of levels of things,
1: then. Where do you think is sufficient levels of value in estates where somebody should be thinking about hiring uh, an, an estate planning attorney? And, and by that, I mean like an attorney who really like, this is what they do is is estate planning.
0: That, that really is a loaded question. <laughs> uh, so it, I think that a good estate planning attorney can, um, that, that, that has a good diversity in their firm for levels of estate planning that they can provide, can give good advice and provide good planning for almost any level of estate. For example, someone's going off to college. They have nothing, right? But they're 18 years old. And therefore, their parents no longer can get access to their healthcare records or make medical decisions for them. They need a health power of attorney. It's worth going to an attorney and getting that. Spend 100 bucks and get a properly dra- a drafted health care power of attorney. Um, if you're a young couple, and again, you're broke, you've got nothing, but you've got a child, that is critical. Who is going to take care of your child if you become incapacitated or die in a car accident? And the likelihood out there, this isn't like, you know, we're grasping at straws here. This happens every day, these car accidents or, or any type of other accident. And your child now um, is the subject of a big legal court battle between in-laws as to who is going to be its guardian. So that's a critical decision to be made. And that has nothing to do with the value of your estate. That is more valuable than any estate could be. So the, the amount of money that an individual has for me to talk to them and assist them with those types of decisions um, doesn't really come into question. The, the the amount that I charge for the estate is certainly proportional to the value of the estate. Now, I understand with you as, as a very highly specialized attorney that deals with large and complicated estates there is a threshold that it makes sense for someone to to retain your services and that's why i enjoy our partnership so much because when a state reaches the level of five million dollars that's outside my comfort level because taxes become a real serious issue and taxes are a thing it's, it's an animal in and of itself if you don't study and understand the tax law every day then you have no business dealing with issues that have tax implications serious tax implications and a five million dollar estate is one of those and so that's when i'm going to refer those individuals out to you for additional estate planning i can put together the foundation i can help you put together your healthcare power of attorney your general durable power of attorney your, your trust that establishes who is going to have authority over majority of the property, but there needs to be another level of planning. And I think that's where the real question comes in. So I'm going to turn it back on you. What is the value? What is the threshold of, of assets that merit specialized estate and tax planning?
1: Yeah. Well, that's, it is a good question. I, I kind of answer it somewhat like you do most of the time. I, I tell people, you know, I don't turn anybody away as long as they're willing to uh, pay us to help them. And and I should clarify, by the way, to, to step back and then I'll answer your question very directly. Uh, you know, like the legal zooms and document preparation type stuff. I'm actually not a hundred percent against them. I, I think estate planning and or estate planning documents are so important and there's such a huge void of people having them that I think it's good for people to have access to them. I just don't want people who access those services to think that what they're getting is the equivalent of the planning services that they would get from engaging somebody like you. But to answer your, to answer your, uh, your original question more directly, you know, I think where we, in our practice, where we really start to add value is when the nature of the assets becomes more complicated or the values start to creep up in the multiples of millions, um, Right now, the federal estate tax exemption is $11.58 million in the United States per person. However, if you flip that and the individual is not a U.S. resident or a U.S. citizen, but they own assets in the U.S., their estate tax exemption is 60000 So understanding- there's a bit of
0: a disparity
1: there. There's a little bit of a cliff, that, <laughs> but understanding where that cliff is, is kind of it, it flips things on its head. And so that's where all of those little facts, you know, where you live, where you have assets, what's the nature of the assets, it can change the, the tax outcome. And then it makes our, you know, our more complex type planning a lot more critical. But if, you know, if somebody has business assets um, and they want to leave the business assets, for example, to family members, well, you, You need to have an idea of what are the corporate or the partnership or the LLC state rules that are going to apply to that asset. How how does that work when somebody dies under those constructions? And then what are the tax rules that apply to those entities? Because it could be that it looks one way, but it's taxed another. So for example, LLCs can oftentimes elect to be taxed a different way than their default taxation and understanding what that is. And sometimes those elections then cause um, overflow issues when you try to leave those assets to family members. And so you anytime you have those sorts of complexities built in business assets and uh, large retirement accounts those sorts of things they're very tax sensitive situations and and so the planning becomes a little more nuanced I would say
0: yeah I agree um, coming full circle on the legal zoom I've gone back and forth on that issue I love um, technology and how it has facilitated so many areas of our lives and, and, and added the ability for laymen to accomplish things that only very specialized individuals or, or highly technical trained individuals could do. Um, my issue with LegalZoom and, and Rocket Lawyer and those online fill in the blank yourself forms is they provide a false sense of security. It's kind of like um, a seatbelt that doesn't really work, right? if the seatbelt strap is made out of material that is going to break as soon as there's any pressure pushed against it, then um, that's going to create, I think, more damage than good because you're putting it on thinking that you're safe and you're not. And then maybe you don't go and, and seek out that additional advice that you need to understand. I've seen so many forums come in and mom is in the nursing home or mom's in the hospital and the, the child is frustrated because the hospital won't recognize their form. And I look at it and, and it, mom's name is filled in and it's signed and it's witnessed and it's notarized. And then it has this um, set of lines, blank lines, that says the authority I give my agent is, and then it's got this um, colon and there's nothing written in there. <laughs> and that's where uh, they were supposed to come up with some descriptive language to say what authority they had. And they didn't write anything in there and then it was no good. And I have seen some documents that were good and they were generated fine, Um, but I also serve as the legal counsel, actually the local legal counsel. You'll see that advertised on TV for both Rocket Lawyer and LegalZoom, that if they have questions and there's lawyers standing by to answer questions. And so I get those calls and I field those calls and I, and I ask some questions. Well, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? And inevitably at the end of each conversation, they say, I just really need to get in and sit down in front of an attorney. And I said, I think that's a good idea. So I really haven't come across a form that I felt, you know what? The computer nailed it perfectly. They, they got it right. Um, at least those forms don't come in front of me because if, if they did get it right, I suppose it wouldn't be my office. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> probably true. That's probably yeah. true.
1: Yeah. You said that uh, a lot more eloquently than I, uh, than I was trying to describe it, but I guess that's kind of what I mean when I say I, 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 I just want people to understand the distinction between having a document and having a plan and what you do as a plan and what somebody gets off of one of these fill in the form sites or, or services is just having a document and that they're not equivalents. Um, Not, not because uh, it's someone, it's not because it's the user's fault. It's that the user doesn't know what they don't know. They need someone who really understands all of this stuff that we've been talking about, who can real, who can see the forest for the trees. Well, Sean, I, we've taken, uh, taken a lot of your time, but you've been very generous and I really, really appreciate it. Thank you so
0: much for doing this with us. It's been my pleasure. And um, I look forward to you returning the favor and being a guest on my radio show here shortly. You got it. Just tell me when I'll be there. Okay,
1: great. Thank you. listeners thank you so much for spending time with us rachel and i both really appreciate it we've really enjoyed doing the podcast we're trying to do our best work and bring you valuable and useful information and i hope you feel the same way and if so please subscribe to the podcast leave us reviews uh subscribe to our blog if you want to follow us and see the sort of things that we write about and also follow us on social media at wealth and law basically everywhere that social media is thanks so much